I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Florence Ann Romano, author, philanthropist, and former nanny. Her new book is Nanny and Me. According to the American Association of Pediatrics, play allows children to use their creativity while developing their imagination, dexterity, and physical, cognitive, and emotional strength. But unfortunately, playtime continues to decrease for many children. Florence Romano, the Windy City Nanny, is a dedicated philanthropist and former nanny who has always had a special place in her heart for children and offers families tips for transitioning from solely parental care to having a nanny in their home. She's the CEO and owner of Kindred Content, a full-service video production company based in Chicago, and serves on the executive board of the Children's Research Fund at Lurie's Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Florence. Hi. Thank you for such a lovely intro. It's great to be here. All right. Well, let's start talking about Nanny and Me. But first, I want to say I've seen you online described as um, the modern-day Mary Poppins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, how did you get that uh, moniker? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's so lovely, you know, to be referred to in that way. And I always laugh because I always say, you know, Mary Poppins, you know, the original Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews, you know, you, you look at her and you think to yourself, okay, you know, she's refined and she's, you know, she's, you know, funny in her own way and she looks like she's practically perfect. Um, but she's not the perfect nanny for everybody. I don't know that you would pick that nanny for every single family. Um, and so when I look at being the modern day Mary Poppins, I really look at that and think, okay, what is what does that nanny look like for different families across America and beyond? And um, as wonderful as Mary Poppins is, and as a standard of childcare as she might be, in this beautiful, um, you know, kind of uh, vision we have in our minds, you know, nannies come in different shapes and sizes today. Um, so I like being referred to as the modern day spin, spin on it. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, I just had that conversation actually with my daughter-in-law because I think what you'd say is true. People kind of try to fit into just kind of one kind of a formula, whether it's hi- hiring a nanny, for instance, and it's critical. That's what I want to, maybe we should start talking about that. When you are hiring a nanny, every family is different. Every child is different. How many kids you have and all of that can, tr- and family values are different. So all doesn't all of that has to come into play when you're bringing someone into your home to take care of you know, in a very intimate situation. Um, it's, yeah. Right. It's one of the most important decisions you'll make for your children, truthfully, because you have to look at this nanny as not just someone who's coming to take care of your kids and, okay, you know, you know that's off my mind as a parent. It's, it's really a role model for your child. That's really how you need to approach it. And, and, and role models come in different ways, and you look for different qualities in that role model. Uh, so that's why the vetting process is so important, but that, that vetting process is only going to work if you, the family, know what you need, that you've already done the vetting of yourself, the vetting of your family, you know, know thyself is the first rule, and then being able to use that information to go out and do that search. Yeah, because you say, and I think let's identify and carry that a little bit further, because I think that's really key. You have to identify your own family values, because you're not just looking, and I guess I'm repeating, but not just looking for a responsible person. That's that's the given. That would be the given in any family. Okay, so we have the responsible person, hopefully. But what are my family values? What are our family values? How do how do couples do this? How do partners do this? What do you do? What's the process for identifying those values? You have to look at what's important to you as a family, you know, from a foundational level. Uh, you need to start talking about, uh, you know, do you want a male or female nanny? I know that might sound strange, but today um, it's, it's a very different world. And also, just we just found out recently that Meghan Markle is going to hire a male nanny for her child to be. Um, so uh, things are a little bit different, and the definition of nanny is different. So deciding what gender you want that nanny to be, to be is first and foremost. And sometimes you do want that nanny to be maybe an opposite gender from whatever you have in the home. So the child has that influence if they're not getting it otherwise. Uh, And then you go deeper. You start looking at what are the 
the, the values we have in terms of discipline or nutrition or education. How do you feel about spanking? Do you, do you, know, do you believe in corporal punishment? If you do, will you allow the nanny uh, to spank or, you know, discipline your child in a physical manner? Uh, if your children have any sort of special needs or a child has a special need, whether that is a severe allergy or they uh, have a developmental um, disability like autism or, or they have Down syndrome, whatever it might be, uh, that's a different set of rules. That's a different set of values that you're going to need when hiring someone and even maybe a difference in education uh, bringing someone into the home. So, you know, that's a good place to start. Start thinking about, you know, how do we feel as a family about how we're raising our children and what do we want the nanny to be as an extension of those values of the home? Florence, how do religion and politics come into play, especially in this time and era, which maybe is a funny question to ask about a nanny, but let's say you're a Democratic or a Republican family. I mean, do you hire somebody who's not, who's the opposite, uh, or even religion? I mean, those are things to consider. Are those They absolutely are things to consider. I always say this is not the same as, you know, going to work in corporate America, Uh, you know, and the the rules of your home and, you know, kind of being a gatekeeper of that is quite different. Uh, And I do think that's part of the value-based system that you're using because oftentimes you're seeing that these children are being influenced. Uh, in different ways by the nanny. And if they're talking about politics with the children and giving them their point of view versus just giving them information, that might start to sway them. Uh, and that might be a deal breaker for you as parents. You know, that that's not the values of our home. That's not how we're raising our children. You know, just like if you live in Chicago like I do and maybe you have a Cubs, you know, you're a Cubs fan family and then you hire a Sox. And for your nanny, oh my gosh, you know, you're in, you're in big trouble there. You know, you've got dueling, you know, dueling teams. You know, it, it sounds silly that maybe it would be important to hire someone that has the same political affiliation as you. But again, it's the value of your household, perhaps. And then also with religion, you have to think about whether or not you're going to be asking that nanny to take your child to services. So if you, if you're, you know, steadfast, staunch Catholic family and you hire a Jewish nanny, uh, does that nanny feel comfortable taking your child to mass? Um, and, you know, then there's, you know, the vice versa. You know, the, the nanny has to consider for herself or himself if they're comfortable doing something that's maybe outside their culture or outside of their beliefs. So it's not just the family that's making these decisions. The nanny also is interviewing the family. Is there a difference also because you can hire and there are mothers or fathers or whoever is, is, is the, the, the parent of the child, um, they may, maybe you're hiring a nanny, but you're at home all day with the nanny. You have three kids mm-hmm. or you have four mm-hmm. kids or one kid, whatever. Is there a difference in terms of that and say juxtapose, say with a nanny who is with the kids all day and both you and your partner, or if you're a single parent, are gone all day. Uh, different set of issues that you have to consider, are there? It depends on uh, how comfortable you are being at home while the caretaker is there, and also the nanny would consider how comfortable they are with that. I've been in both situations where I've been in the home where the mom worked from home and I was there to take care of um, her newborn daughter so she could concentrate on work. Um, and I didn't feel that it was weird at all. You know, I didn't, she really, you know, did her own thing and I, I was taking care of the baby, but of course there's a different energy to the house knowing that the parent is there. Um, and, and those that hire a nanny, perhaps that are stay at home moms or stay at home dads to help them, you know, there's, there's no shame in that. There's really no wrong reason to hire a nanny. I, I'm always the first to say, I'm never going to throw mud at a family or judge them for why they hire a nanny. If you know, you know, it's not up to me to decide, you know, you should, you know, you should be doing that job, not me. Um, It's your job to take care of those children. So if there's a difference between taking care of the children when the parent's not there, when the parent is there, I'd say it's really only different on the side of, of the nanny and how comfortable they are with that. But my caveat to that is, you should be behaving in the house as if you're on camera or as someone is watching you or if the parent is home. I would hope 
and like to think that your behavior as a nanny with those children would not change based on, you know, thinking that no one's watching over your shoulder. Um, and also the parent has to be comfortable knowing that they're, they're going to let you do your job um, and not micromanage you um, and, and be able to concentrate on whatever, whatever it is that they need to concentrate on while you're there and make the best use of, of having the help at that time. I also, I think one of the things that I'm thinking with my three boys, I, I've had nannies while I was at home and nannies while I was at work. And one of the things mm-hmm. that was probably more critical when I was there was that my personality uh, was in sync with the nanny. That you know, if you're a very quiet person and you run a quiet house, and perhaps somebody who's maybe more not so quiet or too out there would be disturbing, even if they did a good job, or vice versa. So, like, yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned that though, because you know, I think in life we generally kind of absorb people's energy. You know, you walk into a party and, you know, if it's a more lively group, you tend to maybe let a little more of your personality out. But um, if it's not, you know, you kind of, you know, kind of just fall to the background and, you know, keep that quiet voice. And so I think it's interesting that you took on the energy of the nanny, which leads me to honestly say that's something to think about when vetting the nanny is what type of personality you want the nanny to have. Again, maybe that's something you want to choose the opposite Uh, that you find in yourself. You want the child to, maybe you find yourself to be very shy and you don't want your children to grow up to, you know, be shy or timid like you necessarily. You want them to have, you know, uh, you know, more, uh, be more social. And maybe you hire a nanny that has that kind of social butterfly kind of energy to him or her uh, because you want to give the child another color, another taste to something in their life. I always say you should hire a nanny thinking of them like, an aunt or an uncle or a godparent in the child's life, that they would be an influence, that they would be a role model. And there's a lot of guilt that comes with being hiring a nanny for a parent and a lot of competition sometimes too, especially with mothers and their nanny. And I always tell them that you always would hope that your child would be surrounded with as much love as they possibly could in their life. So if you can look at that nanny as someone else to love them and care for them and be there for them, make them feel secure, happy, all those things that you would hope that a close relative would do in their life, then you're going to set yourself up for success and you can remove that idea of competition. Yeah. I never felt guilty. I always felt gratitude towards the nanny. I couldn't wait till she got there. And I think it also put, for me, it put me in a position where I was much less ragged and tired and exhausted. So all the energy, I had much more good energy for each one of the boys or, and be able to be do, you can do different things. You can be more creative. You can take one out by himself or herself. Uh, and so there are a lot, of, I mean, there are many advantages, obviously, to, to nannies. Here's a question. Should you ever hire a hot nanny or forget it? <laughs> it's like the number one question I get. And honestly, I always say that you absolutely can. You can hire an attractive nanny, but the question you need to ask yourself and your spouse or you know, whomever you're sharing your life with is, if it's comfortable for you uh, and if there's this idea of temptation that scares you, then don't do it. If there are any trust issues, then don't do it. If your spouse says to you, it just doesn't make me comfortable, don't get mad at them. Tell them thank you for being honest and then move on to the next. But there is nothing wrong with hiring someone attractive. The problem, like I said, is temptation. So if you feel that that is going to be in your home in any way, shape, or form, and you don't want to even just tempt the idea, then don't hire someone attractive. You absolutely can find someone else to do the job who isn't going to bring that element to the table. But can you? You sure can. I never did. (laughs) I, I I don't blame you at all. I mean, you look at the, the, think of the movie stars, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, oh, there's a whole myriad of them who end up marrying right. their nannies, right? So right. I never wanted to take that 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 chance. But uh, yeah, that would be a, I mean, I, I was online looking at some of these websites where you can hire nannies and I, I see some of these pictures of these. I'm 25. I have a master's degree in teaching. I'm a a swimmer and a, and a jogger and a, I speak three languages. I, to me, it was like, I'm not sure I want this person in my house. And I'm being really honest. I, but <laughs> I get not. it. I do. It, it has to be right for you. It really does. I mean, I, 
I've been in a situation before with a nanny family where um, the, her, the mom had friends over. She saw me and, you know, saw me come in to get the kids. The, the friend saw me. And then I left the room and I heard the friend say to her, oh, my gosh, she's your nanny. Not that I, I'm, I'm so attractive or anything like that. But I think it was, you know, they were just commenting on the fact that I was a young, a young girl. And uh, I heard the, my employer comment to them and said, oh, please, she wants nothing to do with my husband. So, you know, it was just. It was funny, you know, just because you don't, you don't picture yourself a certain way and you don't know the way that the perception perhaps the family has about you. And, um, you know, I, I, give that, I give that woman credit for, you know, that not even being a factor for her in, in hiring me. Uh, she wasn't even looking at, at what I looked like, which I, I think is interesting, you know, to each their own, right? Exactly. All right, so nanny cams, yes or no? I mean, do if you're a, a nanny, you should know there's a nanny cam there, I'm assuming, or do people do it in secret, or how does that work? Yeah, people absolutely do it in secret now. There are different uh, requirements depending on the state you live in, what is, what is legal, what is not. Um, but like I said before, you should always operate as if you are being watched by a nanny cam. And the nanny cam is not there necessarily to catch you doing all these devious things. I would hope you're not doing these devious things as a nanny. But it, it also is there to protect you as a nanny. Uh, oftentimes you'll find that that footage is going to help you be able to prove that something was just an accident, that there was no foul play, and it can corroborate your story. Uh, but I'm 100% a believer in nanny cams. It's about whatever is going to give you the parent peace of mind in leaving your home. And if that's a nanny cam, then, then do it. Uh, you also have to remember the reasons why you would have a nanny cam. You know, babies, little infants, they can't communicate. They can't tell you if something's wrong or if there's abuse going on. Uh, you need to be able to verify. And then also, uh, I'll bring up again, special needs children. Uh, how do you know if they have no language, uh, if there's any abuse going on? We see it on the news all the time uh, about these teachers or caretakers who are abusing children, um, and it gets caught somehow, some way on camera. Uh, and so I think it's important for a safety uh, aspect of it all to have that nanny cam in situations where there is no language involved. Can it be used as a, t- as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, can it be used as a teaching tool? Like you're talking about special needs kids or just any of the kids that, you know, because you're watching them, you know, it could be anything that maybe the nanny has some difficulty with and you can kind of go over the film and discuss it in, in, in a positive yes. way. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that is absolutely a way to utilize that footage. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to always be huge, catastrophic things that you find on that. It could just be as simple as maybe you're watching the nanny having a really hard time soothing the child before it's time to go down for a nap. And you, the parent, have figured out a trick to make it easier. And you come to her or him and say, you know what, I think I have something that will help. Sorry, I didn't share it before, but this is what I've been doing when I'm home um, with him or her. Um, And yeah, that would be a great learning opportunity uh, for the child and for the nanny. What would you say are some of the biggest nanny no-nos, stuff they definitely should not be doing? Well, you know, you bring up hiring a hot nanny. I'm going to, you know, use a no-no in in the sense that you should not be dressing in any sort of provocative or sexy way uh, when you're a nanny. You know, you're taking care of children. You know, you don't need to be coming in a string bikini or a crop top, you know, where, you know, anything will be falling out or, you know, it's not an anatomy lesson for these kids. So, you know, definitely dress appropriately. I'm not saying that you need to wear a uniform, uh, but remember that you are... uh, taking care of children, and you are a role model for these children. Uh, so don't do that. And then also don't bring too much of your personal life um, into the home. Uh, I know that a lot of nannies, and, you know, I, I also was this way. I had a very close relationship with the families I nannied for. Um, but there's one thing, there's a difference between getting to know your family and letting them get to know you, uh, where then you, you can also cross a line uh, where you feel like it's you, maybe, you know, the employer becomes your therapist about things and you're talking about all these problems in your life and, you know, it starts to derail kind of your, um, your, your job, which is to take care of those children. And also remember, a big no-no is you're not the parent. Uh, that's from the nanny. You know, you, you have to be an extension of the values of that home. 
And if you're unable to do that, then that's not the right family for you. It's not your job to come in there and change this family. Um, you can address issues that you see. I certainly have as a nanny come in and seen things that I felt were uh, were wrong that I saw going on with the children. And I never criticized or attacked the parent, but I sat down and did talk to them about what I was seeing and how we could help the child together get through whatever the situation was. Um, you have to be tactful. You know, you're never supposed to uh, forget that your, your job is to take care of those children. Your job is to carry out the wishes of that family. And if at any time you're not able to do that, then it might not be the right family for you. Then we're talking about, in social work terms, um, personal and emotional boundaries. I think isn't boundaries the issue? There are, there, there are boundaries that one has to be aware of. The nanny has to be aware of them, and so do the, the, the parents. And you don't want to cross those boundaries, because then once you do, it does change the whole nature of your relationship with the kids and with the whole family. Um, so I it would does. think that, it, it yeah, does. yeah, that, that's You're really... Right. And- Well, it depends on what the boundaries are, too, and you have to set that, you know, as the family, as the parents, you have to set that. And you as the nanny should also come into that family having set those boundaries for yourself as well. Um, And, and, you know, it's important to keep a level of professionalism there, even though, you know, know, I know a lot of families, they, they get so close to their nannies and they have a beautiful relationship. They're like another member of the family, and that's wonderful. I'm not saying not. Um, to, to allow each other to, you know, become, you know, invested in one another's lives. But, you know, boundaries are always healthy, um, and, and establishing those boundaries are, are a good way to set yourself up for success. All right, we're talking about boundaries. What about social media etiquette for nannies and families? How does that fit into all of this in terms of the relationship between the family and the nanny? Well, first and foremost, before you are putting those children that are not your children on social media, you need to get permission from the parents, whether or not you're able to post videos, photos, location, anything like that. Um, Again, they're not your kids. You don't get to choose, uh, you know, the exposure that they have with social media. You also don't get to choose whether or not you're speaking about them on social media if you're using their names, things like that. You know, you need to respect their privacy. They may not want anyone to know that, you know, what, you know, where they live or how many children they have, whatever the case is. You need to go over those, those rules and regulations when you're first uh, interviewing that nanny. Uh, and then also social media. I, I want to just put a plug in for those nannies out there that, you know, even though they're not your kids, you need to be invested in these children. You need to be a present force in their lives, and you want to make sure you put that phone down uh, and give them attention, you know, not just be scrolling through Facebook and Instagram every five seconds because the kids are boring you. Um, You know, there's a time and place that if they're napping, you know, do what you want. Um, But, you know, I see this all the time, this abuse happening, you know, on playgrounds where I see the nannies and, you know, they're not paying attention to the kids at all and they're missing all these moments. And part of your job as a nanny is to be there for the child and to, to give them memories and love and be, you know, really present and focused on them. Uh, And so when it comes to social media, you know, you've got to be disciplined about it yourself and, uh, and, and parcel it out, you know, everything in moderation, Uh, but get permission before you do anything regarding social media on those children. Yeah, it would seem to me even some things really would need to be written down. You need a set of rules. I, I, I'm thinking of a, a nanny who has good intentions and takes pictures of herself with the kids and then posts it on social media or even sends it right. to a friend or to uh, that. I would never want my kids out there. I'm thinking of myself. Uh, all of those kinds of things. And there must be very I mean, we've covered some of them, detailed kinds of things not to do, uh, because there are a lot of opportunities to, you know, engage the kids on social media. Um, I would say write it down. Does that make sense? Yeah, write it down. Have have rules of the home. You know, that even goes, you know, one step further saying, you know, what's the contract that you put together, you know, for your nanny? I mean, it is... Uh, it is a, a, a legal situation. I mean, you are hiring someone. And I would say definitely have a contract. I've, I've been a nanny with no contract and also been one with one. I've seen both sides of it. You know, I'm lucky. I've worked for amazing families and never come into, I would never come into an issue when I was. 
but, you know, you do need to protect yourself, too, and the family needs to protect themselves. I've seen, you know, you know many, many cases where, you know, they put clauses in there about, you know, defamatory, you know, things that are said or, you know, uh, a DNA, you know, um, yeah, you know, non-disclosure and all sorts of things that they put in there uh, to make sure that they're they're protecting themselves. So um, writing it down, if you write it down as the rules of the home that's on the refrigerator or writing it down in an email that they can, you know, go back and refer to or, you know, writing it down in terms of a contract, I think it's a good idea to put it to paper in any case. Great. So great talking to you today. Um, We have to say goodbye. I want to mention the book again, Nanny and Me, Florence and Romano. And you can buy it bookstores anywhere. You can buy it online. You can also go to your website, WindyCityNanny.com. Any other website we should? We've got 30 seconds. Yes, no, WendyCityNanny.com is great. You can find a lot of interesting information there. I hope at least you think it's interesting mm-hmm. regarding child care in the new millennium. And uh, you can get the book there as well, like you mentioned. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Lydia Finette, author and managing director of Global Head of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's. And her new book is The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. Command an audience and sell your way to success. We all want to be the most powerful woman in the room, able to command an audience, exude confidence, and sell anything to anyone. Lydia Finette offers an empowering roadmap with secrets and strategies to embrace and channel your own power. Within each chapter, you'll learn what being the most powerful woman in the room means to Martha Stewart, Barbara Corcoran, Nina Garcia, Deborah Roberts, and more. She's managing director, as I said, global head of strategic partnerships at Christie's, where she's led auctions for over 600 organizations. Uh, Lydia has been featured in the New York Times, WSJ, Forbes, Elle Magazine, Vanity Fair, Vogue.com, and WorkingMother.com. Welcome to the show, Lydia. Nice to have you in the room. Nice to have you in the room. Nice to have you here. Not in the room, but here. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the room. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Well, most of us, you know, I'll speak by for myself, yes, I would like to be the most powerful woman in the room. And I'm sure women who go out and buy your book are probably people or women who think they're not the most powerful woman in the room. So they want to buy your book and want to see how to do it, right? So how do, how do we prepare to do that? How do you prepare us to do that? Well, the book is really a roadmap. It 
traces this story of a 20-year career for me at Christie's Auction House, starting as an intern in the company and rising to a managing director. And over the course of my career, I've had many successes, but also many failures that I think have informed my career and the way that I live my life now. And so each chapter gives an example of how I learned this lesson and how it could be applied to your life. And, you know, when I first wrote the book, I think a lot of people really thought it was going to be more about jobs and work and career. But what I've received in feedback in the past couple of weeks since people started reading it is it's actually applicable to life. So even though the lessons that I'm talking about are learned through work, most of them really come by finding confidence and conviction in your voice, feeling that the strength is within you and you can bring it out and you can sell your way to success in any facet of your life. So given that you started out as an intern, as you said, how did you do that? First of all, how did you get the job at Christie's? Those are not easy. Even the internship at Christie's is a very difficult position to get. So, yeah, let's start with that because you, I know you, you did say, well, you, you're a, a hustler. I've read somewhere you have said that and you hustled. Uh, I want to know how you hustled, but how did you get the job? How did you get the internship? So. My first chapter is entitled The Strike Method, which I like to say is sort of finding this time right before you go any, into any pitch or any presentation or, frankly, anything that you really want in life to really reflect on what is going to differentiate you in that moment so that you're coming from a point of strength. And so, as I like to say in the book, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't have a caller ID. So I had the number for the intern coordinator that I basically met someone through my dad who just happened to start working at Christie's, which was not the world that I lived in as a child. My parents were not collectors. We grew up in Louisiana. And I was at a cocktail party for Christmas with my parents and a woman just walked over to my dad and started talking and mentioned that she worked at Christie's. And my dad is really the world's best networker and had her over to me in less than 10 seconds. (laughs) And um, she gave me the number for this woman named Mary Libby, who'd been the intern coordinator at that point for, I think, almost 20 years. And so I just called her every single day for almost two weeks. And it just wasn't working. She kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, Lydia. And it's lovely to hear from you again, which I'm sure she didn't really mean. But, um, but I said, she just kept saying, you know, the internship program is full. And so I finally, on the sort of day 15 of this ongoing dialogue with Mary Libby, said to her, may I just ask you a question? Could you tell me why the internship program is capped at 30? You know, is there, is it, I mean, no one's getting paid. So are there 30 departments? Like, what is the issue? And she said, well, we take the groups out on museum tours, and the caps at museums are 30, so they can't take more than 30 people. So we can't have more than 30 people in the program, otherwise they wouldn't be able to go. But that, to me, was the entry that I needed, because all of a sudden I thought to myself, well, what if I don't go on the museum groups? And surely not every intern in college is going to show up every day. I just don't think the odds are that good. Um, so obviously there will be spots available at some point, so I could sort of get in there, and then if I prove my worth once I'm there then maybe they'll want to hire me. And that's kind of always been my approach. It's sort of like, okay, so maybe I'm not going to be the person that someone grabs front and center every single time. But if you get me in there, I will work harder than anyone. I will stay till the last table is cleaned an event. I will help with anything. I'm not above anything. And I think that attitude has really gotten me far in life. Um, I think a lot of and, people and in the And also, I think, think you know, that, Lydia, one of the things as you're describing that situation is you – found out that it was a logistical problem at Christie's. It wasn't your problem. It wasn't because you were couldn't do the job or they necessarily didn't think that you could do the job. It was really that just because there were 30 people. It was logistics. And it was I, logistics. Pro- yeah. It was just asking the question differently, really. I think people get stuck at that point sometimes, you know, when they are rejected either from an internship or a job and do make the assumption that maybe it is about them when it may not necessarily be that. So, um, obviously you, yeah, you pursued it, pursued it further. So you call this, well, you've got the, uh, I know one of the things you talk about is the strike method. Um, what is this? Yeah. What is the strike method? And, so I, I basically, when I go on stage as an auctioneer, and you know, to the to the people who are listening, I want to be clear when I say auctioneer, I'm not the art auctioneer who stands on stage selling Picassos for Christie's. I take charity auctions. So I'm on stage at 10 o'clock at night when everyone's had 15 cocktails and they're not really paying attention. And so when I first started taking those types of auctions, when I would go to get on stage and be the auctioneer, nobody would really pay attention because I kept taking them the way that I had seen all of the guys who were auctioneers take them, which was a very 
you know, formal, well, really what you would want if you were spending a lot of money on a painting. You don't want someone who's sort of cracking jokes and things like that. It's a very serious art. But in a, a large crowded room of people who've been overserved, you need something to really differentiate yourself. And so every time I got on stage, I had a gavel. And, you know, people don't really use the gavel as much as they think that people, auctioneers do, but I use the gavel the way that people think an auctioneer does. So I get out there and I slam that gavel down as hard as I can three times every single time I get on stage. And what I realized time and time again was that not only was it very helpful in terms of getting the audience to pay attention to me because I'd sort of done something to really startle them out of their comfort zone. And so they all immediately look on stage like, what is going on? But It also helped me in the moments before to calm my nerves because I knew that I had something that was going to set me up for success. And so I realized every time that I was going into my day job at Christie's, which is essentially creating brand partnerships for the company, that I needed to do something similar. So I say that the strike method can be applied in any facet of your life. Anytime you're going into a tough conversation, anytime you're going into a presentation or a sales pitch, you need to come from a point of strength. So you need to know what you're going to say the minute after you start the conversation. And for me, that's just having an opening line every single time. So it doesn't matter what I'm talking about, how nervous I am. It's like rote memory. Every single time I go in, I start with the, the beginning sentence. And that's what I call the strike method. And so it's just, it's just sort of a, a method of really lining, giving yourself time to think about something and really hone in on what you want your approach to be before you start. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I go into meetings and I watch people fumble through the first 15 minutes of a meeting because they haven't thought about what they're going to say when they get everyone's attention. When, in fact, the first sentence that comes out of your mouth is the most important one because it really sets the tone for the entire meeting. And it also reflects on the way everybody in the meeting is going to look at you and approach you uh, right from the get-go, right? So, okay, that's a meeting. Can can we sort of, because you're saying all of these things um, or all of this, the, the way to be a powerful, be the most powerful woman in the room is not necessarily in a corporate setting or in a business setting, but it could be in lots of other settings, this kind of behavior generalized to other areas. So let, can we yeah. talk about some of those? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, and, and you mentioned this briefly when, during the introduction. So I asked 30 women of varying degrees of powerfulness in the public arena to give me case studies for the book because I wanted them to explain what that looked like in their world, words. And so in the case studies that immediately followed the chapter that I wrote, there's a woman who's an Olympic rower. And she talks about that moment before she gets onto the water, right before the race starts, where she sort of communicates with her partner. And for her, she says that her strike method, she simply taps her partner on the back twice. And that for her is sort of that calming moment that starts it all. And then I have another friend who is involved in philanthropy, and she has a charity that she started in Malawi. And she said that every time she's about to go into a sales pitch for the charity to raise money, she tries to sit down and really think about why she's there. And she's like, you know, obviously I'm there to get money, but at the end of the day, I'm lucky to even be able to be in a position to fundraise. So she's like, I really go back to thinking about the children that I'm going to help and what I can do to help them. And that's really what fuels me and brings me to that point of clarity in my strike method. So I think it's so much better articulated by other people because my strike method is so easy to explain because I have a gavel. But, you know, in the original proposal that I wrote for the book, I had 15 case studies of women who'd all given their example of the strike method. And when I went in to sell the book to Simon & Schuster, the women around the table all said to me, we've all been thinking about what our strike method is. And if we don't have one, we want to have it by our next meeting. So it's, again, it's just that sort of thoughtfulness around having an approach and making sure your approach is impactful every single time. Barbara Cor- Corcoran, what's her approach? Because I know that that's one of the, the uh, examples that you have in the book. I do. Um, so Barbara Corcoran, though, because every chapter is different, Barbara Corcoran actually wrote on um, rejection and failure. So basically, I said to the women, here are the names of the chapter. Every chapter is entitled, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room, dot, 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 sells as herself, uses her strike, strike method, or I believe um, her chapter was, knows that you know, rejection is the most important thing or you, you always come back from rejection. And she talks about the Shark Tank moment where they rejected her. And she wrote a letter that said, you know, every, great, every great success I've had has been on the, the back of rejection or failure. And then she listed them out. 
and the producer of the show called her and she went out to LA and, you know, obviously the rest is history because she's been on the show for 10 years. So I don't actually know what her strike method is because that wasn't the chapter that she chose, but I did love her story about rejection because you think of her as being this sort of successful woman and nobody, nobody ever says no to Barbara Corcoran, but in fact, it took a no to get her where she is today. All right. And I think all of these women um, that you're describing, or even the ones we haven't des- you haven't described yet, but be- being authentic is really critical. Uh, I think it is anyway. And I think that's a, a difficult, maybe that's, I don't, I don't know if it's more difficult for women than it is for men, but somehow, sometimes women, it seems to me, try to play a role that's not authentic, either trying to act mm-hmm. like a man in a situation so that they fear more, feel more powerful and sort of do things that they feel they should do to get in a certain position, and they're not really authentic. Um, so, and I think Particularly, I kind of want to put it maybe in the political today. I mean, because we have women who are running for president, and I see that they seem to be much more authentic than, say, the women that would, and there haven't been many, or the one uh, that we had in the past. You know, like they're, they're, they are authentic in terms of when they're interviewed and their answers. And so, I, I, mm-hmm. talk to me about that. You know, I think it's so interesting. I mean, even on a, on a personal level, before this book came out, I was listening to a lot of podcasts, and I, and I would think to myself as I was listening that the podcasts that I really enjoyed were the ones where the people didn't sound scripted, where they were just sort of speaking off the cuff. And I think that goes back to the authenticity piece. People, people can see what is real and what is not. I mean, you know, pick up Instagram. You can tell the things that have been sort of posed and the people who are, you know, doing things because they're bloggers or influencers. And then you can see the people who are just living their life. And this is just a snapshot of their life and perhaps like a slightly glossy snapshot. But at the same time, they're just living and showing you what that looks like. And I think that those are the things that people respond to. People don't want to feel like they're being sold on something by someone who doesn't really believe in what they're selling or believe in what they're saying. And so in, in terms of just selling yourself in life, authenticity is, in my opinion, the most important thing. And I learned that, you know, as I was saying, I was trying to be a 70-year-old British man for the first 10, five years of my auctioneering career and got me nowhere because I'm not, at the time, I was not a 70-year-old British man. I will never be a 70-year-old British man, but I, I was a 24-year-old woman who was taking auctions and my style couldn't be the same as somebody who had been taking auctions for 50 years. It needed to feel different and it needed to feel relevant to me. And so um, when I first started taking auctions the way that I take them now, which is very much almost like a, an ongoing dialogue with the crowd about what I see in front of me, that worked because that's actually who I am on the inside. And so you know, people always say to me, do you get nervous going on stage? I'm like, no, it's a conversation with people. It's just more people than you know, the average person is speaking to on on an average evening, but it makes it fun and interesting. And I think women, if they recognize that, and I think we are getting there now because of the conversations that have been taking place in the past couple of years, women are realizing that their authentic self is really what's going to help them succeed. And being honest and being vulnerable are things that people respond to. And you don't have to look perfect and you don't have to be perfect in everything you do because actually the flaws are what unite people. And all, and I also, I don't think I said this in the beginning. I mean, you in in doing, in being authentic, and practicing what you preach, you have raised over, if this is the right statistic, half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. Um, yes, that's a lot of money. It's a staggering statistic. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. You know, it was funny because when the book was coming out, the publisher asked me. They were like, "Well, what's the what's your final total?" And so. You know, I, I'd never really sat down, but I've been taking auctions for 16 years. I take between 70 and 100 auctions a year. And I started doing the numbers from all of my past spreadsheets. And it's the number past $500 million. All of a sudden, it was, it was like one of those moments I really, my, my eyes were filled with tears. Because, you know, I see, you know, right before I go on stage, there is a video or there is a person who has been directly affected by, you know, the disease or whatever this organization is raising money for which is terrible because I'm actually a huge crier. So I typically end up like, <laughs> sobbing backstage right before I go out, uh, which I'm sure actually sometimes works to my favor. But, you know, I took, I took an auction for this incredible organization called Cookies for Kids Cancer with this just unbelievable woman in Gretchen Hold who lost her six-year-old son. And there was a family who went up right before and they were talking, and, you know, by all accounts, 
I thought that their son had died too, because it just, everything that they were saying was leading down that path. And at the very last moment, they said, somebody told us to call cookies for kids cancer and our son is alive. And I mean, even now I get choked up when I talk about it. And I had to get on stage directly after that. I have a six-year-old daughter. And so, I mean, you can imagine how emotional that was for me. And so my, old, my younger brother was sitting next to me and he kept laughing. He's like, um, how is this going to work out? He's like, you're sobbing. But I got on stage and I, I was choked up and I was kind of crying while I started my intro. And I could see it in the people who were sitting there. I mean, how could I have gone up there and not shown emotion about what I had just seen? And so that's how I felt when I saw that number two, because I know what each dollar looked like as it was being raised. And I'm really proud of that. I mean, it really, I'm very proud of it. It's probably, aside from my children, um, the thing that I am the most proud of in my life. So that leads us to the next one, inspire others and lead by (laughs) example, which is exactly what you do. Um, Yeah. Lead with your own convictions. That's what I aim to do. Yeah. Lead with your own conviction. And, you know, I, I say this to my teams at work. I say this to pretty much every woman that I speak to and men too. And, you know, I say this again and again, I know this book is the most powerful woman in the room is you, but a lot of these lessons I learned from my brothers and my dad because they have seen life differently than I've seen life. And for whatever reason, I have always wanted to be more like what I saw them doing just because I felt like they, they weren't fearless in a way that I didn't feel like I could be maybe because I felt like outside pressures were making me feel like I needed to be, you know, one way when in fact I wanted to be able to go in and negotiate and not worry about what people were thinking about me the way that my brothers did and things like that. And so, you know, this book really for me is about spreading the word. And again, I hope guys read it too, because I feel like, you know, sometimes they're like, what? Women are so confusing. I'm like, we're actually not that confusing. And I think that this hot pink book will help you realize that. Um, that Maybe we're not confusing, we're just complex and which is very different than being confusing. Maybe we're just, maybe we just feel like we've heard things differently and and we want them to understand how to speak to us in in a way that seems a little bit sort of more... I don't know, just more impactful and helping and, and also just being part of the dialogue and not being scared of it. Lydia, you talk about, you just said your brothers and your dad. What about your mother? Yes, my mom is amazing. I mean, but my mom was never the person who, my mom was a stay-at-home mom for four people. And I think so much, I mean, four people, four children. And, and so much about things like there's a chapter called Roadmap Your Life that is literally I mean, word for word came from my mom. She is the most organized person you've ever met in your life. And when people say to me, like, how do you get it all done? I would say it's time management. And I learned that from my mom. And I also learned a different type of selling from my mom. My, you know, my dad, as I talk about in the book, he's an incredible networker. He's a great negotiator. And I've sort of seen that in every situation that I've ever been in my entire life. But my mom can charm the pants off of anyone. And so her selling approach in life, her getting what she wants in life is done differently, but is also impactful. And then people also adore her because they feel like she brings them into the fold. And so I like to say, people are like, where do you get this personality from? I'm like, it's a perfect combination of both of my parents, truly. Um, it's sort of just like a mix of the two of them. So she was a stay-at-home mom, and your father was the one who was working, mm-hmm. uh, and so they had mm-hmm. more traditional roles. Uh, what? A, mm-hmm. And I, I'm assuming, just from hearing you talk, that they were. This is not a a family, a patriarchal family, uh, in terms of how the family system operated or the dynamics. Um, is that a, yeah, yes the right? No, I mean my dad. Was- we definitely were, I mean, look, it was my parents and boy, girl, boy, girl. My dad went to work every morning. My mom stayed home. She volunteered for the church. I mean, it was definitely, you know, I, I think in Louisiana, that is, it was pretty much what every single one of our friends, that's what their lives looked like. Um, I think the differentiating factor is that my mom is British. And so, and her father actually had been a banker in Africa when she was growing up. So she grew up literally going to boarding school at the age of eight in England, living in Africa. So her life was very international. And because she still had three sisters in England, we traveled to England every summer to stay with her sisters for pretty much the whole summer. And my parents just were big believers in traveling and learning. And so they would put us in a van and we would drive across Europe and see all of these incredible cities and go to museums and things that my other friends in Louisiana were not doing. And I think because of my mother's 
understanding of the larger world out of there, out there way before, you know, traveling all the time was, you know, I feel like now people travel a lot more than they used to when I was little. But for us, that was such a normal part of life, you know, going to England every summer to see our aunts and our cousins and, um, and sort of seeing the rest of the world. And so in a way, I think, although in Louisiana, it felt very normal to be that sort of family. When we were in England, it was very much on my mom's turf. And so my mom was really the person sort of leading and guiding. And maybe that was why I saw a sort of two different ways that you could live in a way. But hers was not the traditional work, going to work every day at all by any stretch of the imagination. It would seem to be it was more than two different ways. I mean, when you're traveling and living in other countries and going to, I mean, she went to boarding school at eight. That will do it. I went to boarding school. <laughs> um, that changes I did everything. When I was thirteen. Yeah, and, yeah, and so yeah, you were not in this traditional sort of insulated or isolated family in Louisiana. There's just a whole big package no. there of experiences that you've had that led you to uh, the most powerful woman in the room is you. It seems to me anyway. Yes. Um, we only have a few minutes left, so what do we want to leave the our audience with? Uh, the Women who women and men, we want the men to be listening too. Um, what yeah. would you say? Yeah. The biggest takeaway for me from writing this book was I had waited for someone my whole life to sort of pluck me out of a crowd and say, there's something that that girl has that's really special. And, you know, when I was on stage time and time again, people would come up to me and say, you know, you should be on a reality show or you should do this or you should do that. And, and I remember thinking like, what, what is it that I want to do and why can't someone figure this out? And it wasn't until I sat down and wrote on a piece of paper where I talk about road mapping your life or writing lists and writing pieces of paper that I wrote, you know, write a book, sell a book about selling, um, but selling to women, selling to men, talking about inspiring and motivating people through what I've seen on stage. And so that was the sort of beginning of this path for me. And you know, I had to sit down and write the proposal. I wrote the book in three months when I was nursing my third child. I mean, these were things done at times when they should not have been done because there were so many other things going on, but I did it. And because I did it, all of these doors have opened. And so I just would say to anyone who is listening, man or woman, little child who's running around, like, if you want something in your life, just remember that you are the only person who can get it. So don't be scared of rejection. Don't stop. Just keep going. And even if you get rejected, just keep pushing through. Because ultimately, if you want to achieve your dreams, you are the person who has to do it. Lydia, thanks so much for being on the show. Lydia Finette, the most powerful woman in the room is you. You can buy her book, buy your book at uh, bookstores everywhere, online, and um, a website we can go to. LydiaFinette.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Lydia Finette. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 